There are men who are never going back to their old school, but who rarely sing about it. There are men who could have a dermatologist named Dr. Wu for years without ever slipping into the conversation, are you with me? And then there's Doug Bost and Adam Bernstein, two men who should have better things to do, but aren't doing them right now. These are two grown-ass men. Grown-ass men. You know, I don't want to do the death episodes because you could. Mm -hmm. You right? could definitely run a show like this just based on who died recently. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And people who are great are dying all the time. Yeah, and this year, more than most, for some reason it feels like some of my favorite artists are just dropping dead. Every, more than last know. year? Well, no, last year was terrible. It was but, the worst. Yeah, <laughs> but even but this year also. Uh, we could do, for instance, we could do a whole Len Wein show. But Len Wein just And we died. might, but, yeah. but I understand what you mean. That You, know, it's you don't want everything cliche, to be yeah. just about, you know, um, our friend Max Schmid does a radio show. It's great radio, mm -hmm. Golden, Golden Age Radio on BAI. And a lot of his episodes are driven by who died that week. Yeah. <laughs> because he'll play. But um, this episode we wanted to do... Just talk about somebody who we loved, who who did die recently, unfortunately. Right, and we're actually deviating from our normal comic book, comic book culture, geek culture uh, stuff, and we're going to talk about uh, the great half of Steely Dan, Walter Becker. Yep. So why are we talking about Walter Becker when we never talk about, in particular, devote a whole episode to certain musicians? Because we're both huge, huge Steely Dan fanatics. Yeah. Right? I mean, uh, right away we were like, we have to do an episode on Walter Becker, right? We have no... Yeah. We have to talk about Yeah, why it. not? I mean, it's just a great excuse to play more Steely Dan music and yeah. talk about talk about the albums that you love. I mean, he's such an elusive figure. I feel like I can't tell you stories about him. Like, oh, we could talk about John Lennon and come up with a million anecdotes that have nothing to do with the albums. Steely Dan is one of the top rock acts of all time. Biggest selling 70s and 80s, huge. But of all the rock acts that reached that level of success, yeah. was there anybody who was as unknown as Walter Becker and Donald Fagan. Like, all yeah. you knew I, who the other rock stars were. If you bought a ticket to their show or bought their album, you knew who's, you knew, you knew something about Bowie. Yeah. You know, you knew something about these other queen, you know, uh, Freddie Mercury, something. But, uh, Donald they were Fagan never on the cover of their records. I mean, this one jacket, I guess Countdown Ecstasy has a picture of them on the back. Yep. Is, and they I wanted guess, to fade into the background. They yeah. had they wanted to be a part of a, a bigger crew, and they wanted you to listen to the music, and they wanted all the things that came along with the fame except the fame. They didn't want anybody to really know them. They didn't have there wasn't a cult of personality around those two guys exactly. I don't think they liked the general public too much either. Yeah, I they have a lot of disdain for like people who listen to their records. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but I'm thinking like they had disdain for the kind of typical, when you think of like, they weren't, they were the outsiders. You know, I always think of them, my own life in high school and in college, 
when I would leave, especially in college, I'm surrounded by all musicians. But like when I left that world, you enter the regular world. Right. And you're like, this is not my world, you know? And I felt like they represented that whole thing so clearly in their music and in their lyrics. They're outsiders, you know? Yeah. They celebrate, I mean, they name their band after a freaking, you know, dildo in a, you know, William Burroughs book. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty obscure. Yeah. They're naked deliberately lunch, obscure. Yeah. Right. Naked Lunch is really obscure, you know, just on its own, you know, besides taking a page out of it to name your whole band. I think they were really coming out of the songwriting, uh, real building kind of thing where we don't, it's not about us as the people on the cover of the album, you know, we're the songwriters, mm -hmm. you know, so I think a combination of those two things. Walter Becker said something to, he was being interviewed by Cameron Crowe in the 70s and uh -huh. he said I, I wouldn't even care if I didn't play on one of my own records that would be fine with me yeah like he just really they got to a point with with their band where they wanted to write the songs and they just wanted to get the right people to record them and they right. just kind of wanted to be they were almost like impresarios of their uh of their music you know right. bringing in the best studio musicians possible mm-hmm they made their first two records, and I guess their second record, which was Countdown to Ecstasy, yeah. mm -hmm. it tanked. It didn't sell Compared to at the all. first. Yeah. yeah. The first so had a lot of hits on it. If they didn't make a, a good third record, they weren't going to get another recording contract. Their right. recording contract sure. was going to be over. So they channeled all their energy into the studio. So that's why... Pretzel Logic is the third album, and it's so you know it's it's a real studio record. Yeah, and they didn't tour to support it because they were spending all their time just doing the studio part of it, and then they just kind of stopped touring in the seventies. After that, well, they got tired of it. Later on, I read Fagan's book. He hates touring. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think he hates performing, but there's so much else about touring that has nothing to do with performing hotels terrible food i read over that book over. too i was so disappointed in that book like he's he just like so much of that book he just complains about food yeah well but you know what bad hotel if food, food is important to you you know it's a problem not just flavor but just like your whole lifestyle but it's it was interesting too that so walter becker and donald fagan came together they uh they met at bard college they formed a band with Denny Diaz, right? Yeah. And it was really Denny Diaz's band. Right. But they kind of took over after a while. Yeah. Because they were doing all the writing, they were doing all the creation, and eventually it became their their band, and they kept Denny in the band, and they just kept bringing in other people. I mean, and they knew that, Denny knew how great they were. Yeah. He recognized yeah. that. He's like, these guys can really write. <laughs> yeah. This is no joke. And then they started making these records, and... The division of labor was really not very clear to the general public. Like, it was hard to tell. It's not even clear to them, though, through analysis much, much later on and what we seem to piece together, it seems like Walter Becker is slightly more sarcastic in his lyrical approach yeah. than Donald Fagan was. But I think musically and melodically, they're just like twins. Yeah, they're very aligned. They're like 
thinking into each other's heads. They love the same kind of harmony. They have the same influences. Yep. I mean, like, totally the same influences. They love harmony. They love jazz. But they put it together in this way. You know, it gets kind of a bad name as Yacht Rock or something like that. But it's it's so much more interesting than most of the records that come out of you know big uh, record companies in the 70s it's yeah. so much more interesting than other records that that well you i mean to. so much music that came out during the 60s and 70s that was popular is just so much more sophisticated harmonically than records that are made say in the 80s 90s and now yeah. you know like they weren't afraid of chord changes so you have Bacharach you know, even Herb Albert, Tijuana Brass. It's like they're playing, they pull from any place they want to pull. Yeah. You know, they're not Frank Zappa. You know, they're just like, we're going to just bring whatever we dig in there and it's just part of the stew. And, I mean, they're clearly, Steely Dan are clearly into R&B intensely, right? Oh, yeah. Fagan talks about, they just, they love black music. Like they Bobby just, Bland. You yeah. know, like sophisticated R&B they're into blues, you know, they're into pop music, but like, I can't see that they're like fixated on the Beatles. Right. You know what I mean? In the same way. I mean, everyone had to be penetrated by the Beatles, but like, they're just so completely into other things. You know, they're listening to a lot of jazz. You know, when I think of, say, Horace Silver, somebody who in jazz really was can make records that were commercially appealing to people who weren't like want the most dissonant kind of thing right they're clearly so steeped in that blue note kind of jazz where i mean that's why song for my father is the clearly the prototype for ricky don't lose that number uh -huh. it's the same intro boom boom boom, boom didn't they get sued boom, over boom. it did they? I think they got sued over that. Well, and they had to share songwriting credit or something like well, that. Well, they should have. Yeah, because it's really... It's not, they didn't I mean, they stole it completely, yeah. you know. But, I mean, it's a nice... They probably felt it was a homage rather than just like, we're ripping but this off. come on. Yeah, yeah, that was a... But, so why did you like them so much? Like, when did you get into them? When did you discover them? I got them? into them like 79, 80. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I had, I had a cassette tape of Steely Dan Gold, which was a greatest hits record. Yes, I never owned it, but I know it. And I loved it. I loved it. I didn't even know that it wasn't a regular Steely Dan record. Right. I just, you know, loved it. And and then I started listening to everything. Mm. And my brothers listened to a lot of Steely Dan, too. They had a big record collection, so we would, I would listen to their Steely Dan records. And just, you go all the way back, like... Can't buy a thrill. Mm -hmm. but, uh, my brother John was really into uh, the Pretzel Logic album mm. and songs like Charlie Freak and With a Gun and Night by Night, which is such a great song. Oh my God! So, well, every song on, on every record is a jet. Strong, yeah. You know, there's no there's no waste. Yeah. I mean, I, how many bands can you say that about? For me, up through Asia, and I guess you could include Gaucho, the, the, I don't, I was never gravitated towards Gaucho as much. Gaucho changes everything a little bit. And then, so they made all these records, and then they made Asia, which was, in a way, the, the, the pinnacle of what they could do. But I mean, 
it doesn't mean it's their best record, but it's I think it's so what they think is what they're finally aiming. For. Yes, I think so too. And then they made Gaucho, which was too slick. Yeah, it's even though it has some great but songs it's, on it. it and amazing harmonies and uh, but then they left the business and right. something happened to Walter Becker. He had he some had drug addictions. Yeah, he had real problems. Eventually, Donald Fagan made a solo record, which I love, which is a really good is that record. The Nightfly, Night yeah. yeah. And then he made a second solo record in the early to mid 90s. And he was having trouble with the record, Comic mm. Kiriad. Right. He was having trouble with it. And I guess Becker came. He, he called Becker, and Becker came to help him with the record. Right. So he came back from Hawaii to New York and, and helped him, and they started songwriting again. Right. And they even started performing again. And I have to say that Carolyn and I, my wife and I, were at, uh, boy, I think it was Studio 54, seeing Donald Fagan perform. dance place in New York City? Yeah, well, maybe it wasn't Studio 54, but there's a, there's a place in Midtown in the... I wish I could remember the name of the place. But we saw uh, Donald Fagan with a thing called New York Rock and Soul Review. Right, with Michael McDonald. Michael McDonald, Phoebe Snow, Cindy Lauper. Great people. Cindy Lauper was Fantastic part of that? Fantastic people. Oh, wow. And uh, so he, they did you know a bunch of shows there. And I, we went to see this one show where in the middle of the show, Donald Fagan was like, just want to say my friend Walter is in the audience out there. And he called Walter up on stage and Becker came up and played with New York Rock and Soul Review, mm. and we we couldn't believe it. And Carolyn was like, "Is that a big deal?" And I was like, "Yes, it's a huge right, deal." Right, right. They're finally playing. And, and it was the first time they'd played live together since 1974, right? Apparently, which was so much fun to to see. And and then after that, they started playing live as Steely Dan, right? Making new Steely Dan records. Which are not as good as the old Steely Dan records, but right. there's still there's there's life to them, you know. Yeah, sure. But then, as you and I know, they started touring again, and their live shows just got better and better and better and better. Yeah. Well, you and I saw at the Beacon, they would take albums and play the entire album, then play a whole bunch of gems after that, and we saw the Asia Night. We had good seats. We were lucky. A friend of ours gave us those seats for free. And, like, that was one of the best concerts I ever saw. I mean, to see Asia, such a complex, you know, slick record that played so incredibly, to be performed like that, so perfectly live, but not like antiseptic live. No. Like, with a lot of soul and everyone's digging, playing. And I was like, oh, man, that was so great. It sounded amazing. You know, that was really a highlight show for me. It was really, it was a great show. You know, and then and, they played other tunes, and it was like, wow, you know. Yeah. But, what a band. And oh, the my backup God. singers are fantastic, and both Becker and Fagan sounded great. And, the, you know, it was... It's funny, they're a New York band, essentially, in terms of the band... And I've known a bunch of the people who've been in the band because they play with people my age mm-hmm. who are just like New York players. Like the guy, I don't know everybody by name, but like I knew some of the background singers and the baritone sax guy, trombone guy. And it's like they loved playing. And I mean, how could you not? It was like 
that's music for musicians to play. Right. If you are inclined to playing sophisticated music, you know, I mean, it's like the highest level because it's not just sophistication. It's great, great songs that make total sense. And they're records that I find I can listen to over and over, year after year, because I, you know, I, I, I'm kind of obsessed with their records. I listen to them a lot, but they're records that are worth listening to at a plane that, like, kind of blue exists on, like mm, a, a record wow. that you can just put on at any time, and it's just a fantastic thing from start to finish. You can right. listen to it. I, I just love their records. Now, Walter Becker is a, a bassist. He's a guitarist. Right. He he was a lyricist, songwriter. What attracted you to to what? What do you think that he did? What what did you? What do you hear as a musician when you listen to what he does? Well, I guess I should say, as a lead into that, that I learned to play bass to the first six records. I used to play along with those records all the time, particularly 10th and 11th grade, you know, 12, 11th tw- grade, 12th grade. A lot of my friends had split. They graduated high school. So I had less of a crowd around it. I mean, I always was practicing a lot already in ninth and 10th grade, but like I was really serious about practicing. I practiced two, three hours a day, every day, you know, and like, I had a book, which I still have now, which is the songbook of the first six records. Now I know that a lot of it isn't completely accurate if I look at it and listen along now. But, like, it was pretty close. At least the chords were there. You could, And I would play along, you know. And I was like, that was a deep, deep way of learning to play, you know, because the players on that are astounding, <laughs> you know. So... Early on, when Walter did play bass mostly, it's very simplified. You know, it's not loud in the mix at all, you know. And I feel like he always was really much more of a guitar player, you know. And, yeah. But uh, His solos, you can really tell. I, I can. And yeah, I can really sure. hear his, his work as opposed to other people that they get for the sessions. Right. I mean, I was so into all the people that they had on those records... And like even I listened to something on Katie Lie the other day, and the bass is low in the mix, but I was just cueing into it, and it's very complicated. I think it was uh, Doctor Wu. Uh-huh. You know, I don't know who's playing bass on that, but it's like it's really happening. You know, there's a lot going on at certain little spots. I'm like, wow, I never noticed that. You know, I love that song, Doctor Wu. I mean, I think I love that album the most. For some reason, that as much as I love all of them, they all, and I think I've mentioned this to you before, like every album has a special time in my life, you know? Because I got into Can't Buy a Thrill in ninth grade when I was meeting my whole new crew of folks. And one of my really good friends was into that. He's like, do you know this record? I was like, no. I mean, I did know Do It Again and Reel It In The Years. But like... I mean, I flipped on that record. And then it was just like, all right, I'm going to go record by record by record. You know? And I was... <clears throat> I relate certain people to certain songs. And hmm. I, I, 
and I definitely know what you're saying about like certain records equal different time periods in my life. But even songs, like somebody, if somebody ever says something to me about a particular Steely Dan song, right? Uh, my sister-in-law one time made fun of um, the ending of uh, "Only a Fool Would Say That." And only a fool would say that. Only a fool would say. I've never forgotten it because it's like she was talking about me personally. Even like the I guy feel, speaks in another language yeah, or something. Yeah. And I just, it, it's it's like a personal thing for me. Like these yeah. songs are like something I feel like I own in, in some way. Right. When I went to college, my first year at Berkeley, one of our classes was like arranging and we had our X number of people in the class who played. They tried to make it so you could have a band. So, like, you know, they split the classes into, there was a bass player, a saxophone, piano, blah, blah, blah. And one of the first things I brought in was an arrangement of Only a Fool Can Say That. And the singer knew it, so we were able to play it, you know. But I had to write out everything. I had to write out the vocal line and blah, blah, blah. It took a lot of work back then. <laughs> and, like... It was so satisfying. Right. I mean, I was playing bass, you know, and I was like, this is just amazing to be playing this music, you know, because I was so, it was such personal music for me, you know. And I always felt like an outsider. So lyrically, you know, my old school, like all those tunes, you know, even Dr. Wu, you know, it's like of these characters who they're being taken advantage of and they're writing about it, you know, like jilted lovers. I mean, it's stated in like ways that are so camouflaged. And like a song like Bad Sneakers, like it's somebody who he's he's got an opportunity. Maybe it seems like he's got a job in the city that's good, but he's, you know, he he resents being away from home. Right. And he's he's kind of a he's like one of the classic steely dan hipster loser characters right who's the main focus yeah who's the main focus of a song uh and you feel like walter becker and and fagan both you know those were the guys that they identified with and they were it was natural for them to write songs about those characters You know, people talk about how they're perfectionists. Yeah. And that's a big criticism of Steely Dan. People are like, oh, it's too perfect. It's too, like, overproduced and perfect. And and yet, they're really into jazz, which is the opposite of that. It's all this improvisation and embracing, like, something that can change. And they sort of worked in this way. Uh, I watched a great documentary. You've seen it, too. I know. You own it. The... um, documentary about the making of Asia. Right. And somebody in there talks about how they kind of embrace the idea that you work on something and get this jazz improvisation feel where things are loose and things could happen. Right. And you but you get it to this point of perfection and then mm-hmm. you sort of go beyond that. So you've you've achieved this level of I know exactly how, how this can be, and then you go even a little further and sort of leave that behind and right. get to another, even better place. And that was sort of what they were doing: is taking the, especially on Asia, I think, right? You know, finding a way to get the 
improvisation of jazz to this place that was so, you know, so tight and yeah. so clean and then even getting further than that. Right. I mean, they had Gary Katz and Roger Nichols. They had like this team, the four of them. I mean, they were really into the sonic, you know, what they were producing sonically. You mm -hmm. know, it's like, it's not just them. They have a vision, but they needed people to help them. Just like they would get a band particular. The band on Josie, you know, it's like, this is the band. You know, like you say, oh, this, you know, you were mentioning about the solo in, I don't remember which tune it was. It was in Deacon Blues. In De oh, like, I this think. is the right solo. No, this is solo number two. And then, oh, no, this is the one we used. Because this is the right one. Right. You know, and I think that's just incredible. They were really auditioning so soloists. And they would say, it, it, uh, I can't recommend enough watching that um, right. Asia documentary to people. It's on YouTube. You can just watch it on YouTube. And there was one guy who was talking about how they would record the song one day with an incredible studio band. Right. And it would come out great. Right. And then the next day, they would have a whole other amazing <laughs> band, completely different people, coming in to do the same song. Right. Just because they were, you know, they, they were like, eh, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to work. Let's do it again with another amazing band. I mean, what's amazing about that, which relating to the Beatles, is they have the budget to do it. Yeah. You know, so many artists are always like struggling with money. It's such an impediment to making art because you need to have money to have the best people and equipment around you that's available at that time and space, you know. And, like, they have it. They're successful. Yeah. They can, like, hire the best people in L.A. and then re-record it the next day. Those are the top session guys in L.A. That's a big deal to be doing that. But I'll miss him, you know. And, and <laughs> it, it seems like... Steely Dan is going to continue touring. Donald Fagan is going to uh, continue touring right. with the Steely Dan band. Yeah, I mean... Why not? It's, he yeah, should. he should. That music deserves to be played. Yeah. People love that music. Speaking of that, I, one thing I will plug before uh, we end this episode yeah. is that I got so into Steely Dan and was it was at the front of my mind for... Uh, long enough time that I decided to write a little play right. called The Dan right. about a guy who's really obsessed with Steely Dan and it's uh, you. It, we made it as a radio play right? and um, you can hear it I'll, I'll put a link up so that Definitely. people can it's listen available to it. on it's YouTube like a, it's right? on YouTube yeah it's like a half hour radio play and it's me Mary McCary Victor Verhage Jeff Ward and I wrote a fake Steely Dan song we tried to <laughs> right. make it sound like their their old um uh, demo tapes. Oh, so right. So it sounds kind of crappy and f like a like a demo tape. Right, right, but right. But it was really fun to write. Try to write one of their songs, and it was just a product of me thinking about them. Yeah, constantly. Well, well in this episode, I have one of the song Steely Danish song that I wrote, which is called Kings of the World. Page. Mm -hmm.
Let us know what you think. Yes, please do. But thanks for listening. Go out and uh, I recommend. What Steely Dan song do you recommend listening to that people should just put on headphones and listen to? Oh, man. They should listen to just side two of Countdown to Ecstasy. Mm-hmm. Just go for the whole side. Mm-hmm. My Old School. And mm. Pearl of the Quarter. King of the World. King of the World. And Showbiz Kids. Yep. Come on, man. (laughs) I think everybody should listen to uh, Deacon Blues. Yeah, man. Just, like, put on headphones and close your eyes and listen to Deacon Blues again. It's just... And then buy a stereo. Yes. Go to a stereo store with a brand new vinyl version (laughs) of Asia. Test out the, you know, turntable and buy the most expensive stereo and appreciate Steely Dan. All right, thank you for listening. Thanks, folks.